This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Today is August 7th, Wednesday, and you're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, and I'm here joined by our editorial director, Ted Olson, this week. Hello, Ted. Hi, Morgan. I'm glad that you're here. Yeah, it's been a while. I'm glad to be back on it. And I think our listeners may be getting a special dose of you this month as... Mark has essentially taken the month to go fishing. Even if that's not true, I'm just going to say it's true. That's true. That's fairly true. All right. So, Ted, who is joining us today? We're joined by Andrew Root, a familiar name to uh, CT readers. He's a professor and Olson Balson Chair of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary. His 2011 book, The Theological Turn in Youth Ministry, was awarded Book of Merit by CT. His 2014 book, Bonhoeffer as Youth Worker was the basis of CT's January 2015 cover story, Stop Worrying About the Millennials. And his latest book, just out in June from Baker Academic, is The Pastor in a Secular Age, Ministry to People Who No Longer Need a God. So thanks for being on the show, Andy. Hey, thanks for having me. It's fun to be here. And Andy, where are you calling us from? I am calling in from the Twin Cities, from St. Paul, actually. I live right on the border between St. Paul and Minneapolis, but it's very important that I say I'm from St. Paul and not Minneapolis. Indeed. So, people yep. people care about that, especially up there. They do. Uh, St. Paul people care because Minneapolis people are snooty, but I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> Absolutely not. We are very above ever well, having those. I'm way above more. that. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. And I think people are probably wondering why we're going to talk about youth ministry today. So I am here to answer that question or at least get into that answer. So if you are listening to this podcast, no doubt you know that once again, we are recording a show in the wake of more horrible mass shootings. These are the numbers that we had as of going to record this podcast. 22 people died on Saturday's mass shooting at a Walmart in El Paso. A shooter killed nine people in Dayton later that night. And just about 10 days ago, a shooter opened fire at the Gilroy Garlic Festival in California, murdering three. And these are just the people that died. Obviously, there's a lot of other people that were injured. And there's a lot of people who are going to also be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of this, even if they were not physically harmed. In the wake of these shootings, the LA Times ran an op-ed from two researchers who have been studying the life histories of mass shooters in the U.S. for the Department of Justice. We have studied every mass shooting since 1966. Here's what we've learned about the shooters, they wrote. Of their findings, these two points stuck out. So I'm going to read you from their editorial. He said, first, the vast majority of mass shooters in our study experienced early childhood trauma and exposure to violence at a young age. The nature of their exposure included parental suicide, physical or sexual abuse, neglect, domestic violence, and or severe bullying. The trauma was often a precursor to mental health concerns, including depression, anxiety, thought disorders, or suicidality. 
Second, practically every mass shooter we studied had reached an identifiable crisis point in the weeks or months leading up to the shooting. They often had become angry and despondent because of a specific grievance. For workplace shooters, a change in job status was frequently the trigger. For shootings in other contexts, relationship rejection or loss often played a role. Such crises were, in many cases, communicated to others through a marked change in behavior, an expression of suicidal thoughts or plans, or specific threats of violence. We will link to this article in the show notes if you would like to read the whole thing because it's pretty interesting. So beyond that, many of the shooters have also been young. The ages of the gunmen in the shootings last week were all between the ages of 19 and 24, and nearly all of them are men. Given these disaffected young men, many of whom were traumatized as children, how might we as the church re-engineer our current model of youth ministry to better reach disaffected youth? In a time when the population if and when it finds community, often does so, at least in these instances of these guys, finds community in radical online spaces or in gangs, how can the church practically offer an alternative? So these are some of the questions that we want to get into today on Quick to Listen. But before we do that, Ted, I think it's important for us to kind of give a gut check about how we're reacting to another week of awfulness. Yeah, it was interesting engaging with this Um when I when I popped on social media, actually, the first thing that I saw was about some uh, shootings in Chicago. So, and then I I only afterwards read about the ones that had gotten more you know, media media attention. So that kind of reframed uh, my encounter a little bit. Uh, you know, I recently uh, preached a sermon on on Ecclesiastes, where just this idea of of death being sudden, being unfair being uh, just this, uh, this, this evil that, you know, negates a lot of the good work that we've done in the world. This is still very, very fresh in my mind. I've had some friends die as well. And it's just this, um, I think earlier I would have gotten like, oh man, more shootings and, and, and really either despondent or it's very easy to get, get hardened to it. But I think, you know, engaging with it, so you can you can I was able this time, interestingly enough, gratefully to to lament it without without necessarily being consumed by it, uh, realizing that the the fact that this is the way we live now is not something that you shrug your uh, shoulders about, but recognizing that this is part of life in American culture is something to lament and to talk about and to work against, but also to have realistic expectations about trying to fix. For me, I would say I felt this probably just because, again, of the banality of activities that most of these people were doing. For instance, the Gilroy Garlic Festival was something that I heard about growing up. I didn't go there with my family, but I'm familiar with it. And definitely was hit with this sense of just like, I don't want to die. Like, I'm not scared of or about to alter what I do. You know, for instance, there's a big errand water show that's going to happen in Chicago in a couple weeks. And I'm not the type of person that's like, I'm not going to go because I'm nervous about crowds and what will happen because there's obviously not security at something like that. But I just don't want to die doing something like that. And that's what I feel really strongly because I know that everyone who's also doing these activities does not want to die, right? They're out in the world doing things, being with other people. And that's what honestly like eats at me the most when I hear these things is because I know that these people were being with other people where they were living, they were taking part in stuff that I can really see myself in a lot of times. And then we talked a little bit about just like feeling desensitized from some of the stuff that happens, which I did feel some, though yesterday the New York Times podcast, The Daily, did an 
episode where they were looking at the El Paso situation and one of their reporters interviewed a couple who had lost their kid in Parkland who happened to be in El Paso at the same time. And the reporter started crying during the interview that she did with this family. And I started crying listening to the reporter cry, which felt somewhat cathartic is not the right word, but I don't like feeling cold to the stuff that's happening, you know, because even if there are so many, that doesn't make them like stop being sad or evil or awful. So that's kind of where I was, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that happens in, you know, when you hear numbers, you know, numbers can wash over us pretty, pretty quick. It, it often does take kind of the, the personal stories and someone else's emotional reaction. Like I mentioned, I had just had some friends die, uh, and it was really interesting thinking about my reaction to some of those. There were a few that I had had a chance to say goodbye to because of life changes. You know, I'd moved away or, you know, we we're kind of Facebook friends or just, you know, we'd been friends longer ago and we communicated less frequently. And I had, I dealt with their deaths in sadness, but not, you know, not, not overwhelming grief. Uh, whereas uh, my friend Rob Mall, who died, uh, he a former worker here, also had some some sense of a goodbye. We are still in uh, a lot of relationship, and you know, I, I that re- hit me really, really, really hard. And you know why? You know, I I've been thinking a lot about why why did that one hit me so much harder than some of these other friendships? And you know, I don't have a, I don't have a good answer for that. But that I think some of these tragedies have hit me some of the same way, where some of them just rip my heart out, and some of that's because you hear a personal story. And some of them, you just say, "Oh my gosh, when is this going to stop?" And they hit you kind of the the tonnage of of, of violence in the world. It's the it's, it is the numbers that hit you sometimes, and sometimes it's just the the one story you hear. So yeah, grief's a funny thing. So Andy, we're bringing you on because we want to kind of talk about the young people component of the young people dimension, I guess, of these stories. And and I'm wondering, you know, when you see the ages of these gunmen and they're under the age of 25. How do you react to that? Yeah, I mean, I think I react the same way that you all were reacting in the sense that it, it, it both is shocking and it's it's horrifying. But then after it happens a half dozen times and we find out that nearly every one of these folks, like you're saying, is is young, but also is male, often a white male. It almost becomes obvious. I mean, you, you almost lose the shock in it and it just becomes, I don't know, you take it for granted. So, but I, you know, I do, I do think it really points to the fact that often, especially within Protestantism, kind of youth ministry has been something you do to entertain kids, to keep them connected, to, to have families pull into your church parking lot instead of passing your church and going to another, another church that, you know, in many ways I've said youth ministry has often been a billboard that, that attracts young families. And you see that there's a lot more at stake here in, in how we think about young people within the church and in how we do youth ministry. But I do think we, we have a crisis with, with young people, particularly young men in this culture. What the answer is, I'm not sure, but it is definitely an issue for us. One of the first things that will happen, maybe this might be changing a little bit as the media has become a little bit more introspective about covering mass shootings, right? But traditionally, we will get this profile the next day of people who go around and talk to the folks who knew the gunmen or alleged gunmen in many instances. You know, I feel like the word loner comes up a lot. What is going on in your head when you're reading through these profiles and they're describing the gunmen in that way? It, it seems like that is, like you said, with the study you wrote at the beginning, that that's a it, it correlates with all these folks. And I do think, you know, it is an issue of 
young men that we have to confront and ask questions about. But to me, and maybe I'm just too much of a pinheaded academic here, but I, I do think it says something particular about modernity in late modernity in the time that we're in. There's something about maybe the technological realities we live in, the way our communities are kind of disembedded from one another, about how community becomes a quite absent thing, that we're living in a kind of a precipice right now where people are just we're never more connected than we are now, but we're never lonelier than we have been now. And I think that's across generations. And we're just kind of seeing, especially with some demographics of people, that loneliness in the human soul doesn't do very well together. You know, maybe we're at a particular particular time where in a broad kind of strokes across the Western culture, we're trying this experiment of allowing people or forcing people into kind of enclaves of loneliness and their only interactions with the world are through kind of digital spaces. And it just doesn't seem... The early returns, at least, are this doesn't seem to be very a very healthy thing. Now, I'm not one that wants to demonize technology or say that that's the problem or to say that violent video games are the issue. I think these problems are really thick issues and there are multiple realities there. But it really is clear that maybe this is my own theology, too, that the human spirit is just not constituted to be alone. It can do incredibly destructive things. And so it's not surprising. But what I think is a toxic recipe that we're dealing with is loneliness coupled with what Nietzsche actually called resentment, this French word for resentment, which is deeper, which is these grievances that you've talked about. And so when you're all alone in no community of kind of face-to-face interaction, but you can go online and just be taken into kind of a pseudo community um, reverberating grievances, it just, I just think it's corrosive to the human human soul. And, and so I think there really is something endemic about what it means to be a modern person, that we live with this at least baseline sense of grievances or that uh, resentment for other people or resentment for the way the world is. And if it's fed in a certain way, and particularly if we're disembedded from communities, it can have, as we're seeing, quite violent reactions. And, and this isn't new. I mean, you can you can sketch this throughout throughout history, this grievances. What is maybe kind of new is that people have military weapons to, to get revenge on grievances that they seek. But this becomes an issue I think we have to confront. Yeah, sure. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of that, you know, I think outside just youth as well. I mean, you know, there's a lot of grievance culture in the church and in our, our politics right now. I guess, you know, stepping uh, sideways from that, I'm wondering, you know, you have, I know you have some background in parachurch youth ministry with Young Life and in, in church-focused uh, uh, youth ministry. My sense is that it's it's been hard for youth ministry to reach, you know, while, while there's been some, some ability to reach kind of the nerd or the geek or, or that kind of thing. It's a little bit harder to reach, you know, someone who might be, you know, the loner of this of this kind of of this kind of. It's someone who's maybe also hostile to people that are in. Yes, right. Well, I'm especially, you know, like I was thinking, you know. Like Young Life back in the day, this now Young Life has changed quite a bit. But Young Life used to be built around, you know, if you attract the cool kids, the other kids uh, will will follow. And, you know, certainly that's not going to be something someone who's going to attract someone who has a, you know, who, who feels aggrieved by, you know, the, you know, their peers at school or whatnot. You know, is there a history? Is there an ability? Is there uh, models that, that you know of? of churches or parachurch ministries that have successfully been able to reach particularly loners who may not be attracted to the group and youth group? And I honestly don't know. My, what I do know is it's incredibly difficult. The way that youth ministries kind of unfolded post-war, like post-World War II and into the parachurch movement, there was a deep missional impulse to kind of reach out to these young people. But it was also a very different culture at that time, like you had mentioned. But as we've kind of moved into 
the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and even into, into today, that youth ministries become a mainly a congregational-based reality. I mean, we still we still have parachurch organizations going on, and there are still organizations that are uh, that are on the kind of cusp of reaching out and, and probably have interactions with young people like this. But most local churches, I don't think boldly, I would say, can reach young people like this. Um, because as a middle-class phenomenon, it really does in some sense become a holding pen, or it becomes your job as the youth worker is to keep some kind of growing youth group going. And usually that means kids have to ha- be having some fun, but also they have to feel safe. And I think particularly in our our time. Safety, in particular, emotional safety becomes a high good that parents have. So all of a sudden, a, a loner kid comes who either is bullying or has been bullied and, and then comes in and is just a negative presence. It can lead it can lead young people to say they don't feel safe and lead parents to be very clear to the youth worker that they don't want that kid around because he he she feels unsafe. I think it becomes really difficult that I think American youth ministry, as we kind of think of it classically, has been a middle class phenomenon. And that tends to push these young people out or not even out. I don't even want to say that we we boldly push them out, but they just disappear. And most youth workers don't even think about where they've gone because they just kind of disappear into the ether. And we don't really have a theological and a ministerial kind of perspective to go find them. And I think these kids are particularly, not always, but particularly in middle class kind of settings. This grievance culture tends to really grow inside of middle class phenomenons where you are really comparing yourself to other people and feeling like you're not succeeding as well. And and it's those people who are to blame. And someone needs to get back at those people. So they are at least adjacent to a lot of these youth ministries, if not in them. But I think they disappear. The the more difficulty that they're under, the more I think they get a message from us that we're not really interested in that. No one, I don't think, boldly says that to them, but I think they pick that vibe up pretty quickly. (laughs) I can understand both the impulse of the parent. It's like, hey, you know, I've got my kid in this youth group. This is like the one place it's supposed to be safe. And they're getting bullied in a youth in a youth group context at church can also understand the desire to like, you know, you know, this guy's hurting, we need to rescue the perishing and, and church is about living with difficult people. And, you know, from your perspective, how do you thread that needle? What's what, what, how should, a, how should a youth pastor navigate that tension? It's a big question that probably is larger than just what the youth pastor does, because the youth pastor does have to respond to what executive pastor, what senior pastor, what, you know, parent leadership committee wants to happen. But, you know, something's happened within Protestantism where as youth ministry became a congregational phenomenon, that missional element of it kind of got lost. And I, I, I watched the movie. I don't know if you've seen the movie, The Florida Project. Have you seen mm-hmm. The Florida Project? Really yeah. good. Oh, it's and really intense. It's really intense about it, it. Talk about grievance culture again. I mean, it's a this single mom basically living off the excesses of uh, Disney World. Like she's living in a you know three star hotel, and this is the only place that they have to live, and just living in, in poverty alongside of fast food places. I watched that movie on a plane, and it was a very uncomfortable situation because I found myself breaking down crying watching it. You know, which is never a good thing to do in public on an airplane for people to see you you know sobbing in your chair as you watch as you watch this movie. Uh, one of the reasons I, I was sobbing is because it really felt like kids like Mooney in this in this in this film have been completely forgotten by youth ministry, and at its core, that's what youth ministry was actually for. Maybe you can paint a little kids. bit more of what yeah. the situation is. 
so Mooney is just this girl who's, uh, she's, I don't know, what do you think? She's about eight or so. And she's, yeah, she's just living in this uh, apartment, is completely disconnected. Her mother's kind of an addict, can't find work, just, uh, and yet the the happiest place on earth is just, you know, blocks away, but she has no access to it. As a matter of fact, like her apartment building, the pad for the, the helicopter that gives honeymooners the view of the Magic Kingdom is right there. And it, even the, the little area she can play is filled with the, the noise of the helicopter. Well, I would mention a couple things, too, which is one that she's not technically living in an apartment, more that it's a motel that's been that's right. priced yep. for families who are able to live there long term. Two, there's not very much structure in her life at all with regards to she just kind of runs off and plays all the time and <laughs> does what she wants. And three, I would say there's a lot of just like her relationship with adults is really strained and challenged yeah, and, conf- and confused in, in in so many ways. And and yet you, you know, you, you have this one scene where a church comes and, and delivers some bread for folks, some, some food for folks, but there's really no interaction. And in my reading of the history of youth ministry is it really did start to reach out and do ministry with kids like Mooney or kids that felt like they were pushed out or loners And the congregation itself supposed to be doing discipleship. So the youth ministry wasn't supposed to be doing discipleship. The youth ministry is supposed to be reaching out to kids in the community, to kids in the neighborhood and sharing the gospel with them and ministering to their needs. And the congregation itself was supposed to be doing discipleship with young people, but that's totally flipped. As parents and others in the church feel like they don't know how to pass on faith to their own children, they turn to the youth pastor to be able to do the discipleship work. And if that's kind of what you're being evaluated on and that's what you're told you're supposed to do, and then all of a sudden you have this weird kid who comes in. First of all, you don't even see the Moonies who are out there. You just drive past them. They're, they're invisible. But then when the weird kid with his hood comes up and sits sits in church and doesn't doesn't talk or sits in your youth group, I should say, and doesn't talk, you just feel like that kid's a problem. And then other kids find that kid weird. And then you don't maybe even say anything, but you tend not to reach out to that kid and that kid disappears. And then, you know, you find out five, 10 years later, maybe this kid has done something like this or been radicalized in some way. The response is we just never knew. So it is this kind of sense of who does discipleship and who passes on faith. And and my work has tried to push that the congregation, the, 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 the larger community does that work. And if there's if there's an, enough resources there for the youth ministry, the youth ministry should be really more missional out caring for kids like this. But usually you don't get that. Parents will push back on youth pastors who want to have that kind of ministry and say, no, 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 we paid you to hang out with our kids or we we paid you to teach the Bible to our kids. And so in many ways, we've outsourced the discipleship work to the youth pastor, and that's kept the youth pastor from being able to do some of the more spiritual pastoral care, some of the more outreach that I think at its core is what youth ministry should be about. So is the, I mean, obviously we've written uh, long books about this, but but is at the core, the answer to more fully integrate youth into the broader life of the church where the discipleship ha- is happening more more in the same way that adult spiritual formation is happening? Or is it you know a broader a broader issue than that? I think at its core, it, it really is that. And I think there'll always be reasons for, say, high school students or middle school students to cohort them up. But we have a really interesting situation where the cohorting is the norm. And then if there's any kind of intergenerational interaction, that's episodic. That doesn't happen as much, where I think that actually should be flipped, that getting them into the the life of the congregation, into the educational Bible study uh, with other adults is probably more important. And then cohorting them up at other times would be significant 
significant too. But I, to me, that becomes a huge piece that really what passes on faith is the life of this community and the narratives of this community and the, and the struggles and prayers of, of this community. And that young people really need, I think, a lot of stories of adults who are, um, you know, we've classically called this testimony, but a lot of adults who are living in faith, hope and doubt and, and trying to figure this out. And when we cordon them off, really kind of strong walls around the youth ministry, then um, they don't tend to get that. So my, my I try to advocate more that we still need maybe something called youth ministry or something called middle school ministry, but it needs to be more porous on the edges that are getting these young people engaged with other adults, watching them struggle to live out, out their faith, these their parents as well as um, other adults within the church. Andy, I wanted to ask you, I, I really enjoyed your your uh, book on, on Bonhoeffer as a youth worker. And, you know, I do often think about, you know, this idea that, that Bonhoeffer was doing a lot of his work on how to respond to uh, Hitler, the rise of, of Nazism, as he is do- engaging with, with youth ministry, children and, and teens. And he's writing these manifestos about what youth ministry should look like at the same time that he's writing about what, you know, what, what should we do about the rise of Nazism. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about some of the details on that. What would Bonhoeffer say about trying to reach out to youth that are being radicalized on these message boards, you know, on, on the Eight chans and the and the uh, you know four chans and on uh, you know other you know I know Bonhoeffer focused a lot of this on what churches need to do but if these kids are not in churches I mean what's Bonhoeffer recommending in in his day like would he have said you know hey you know make sure pastors are getting on these message boards telling people it's wrong I mean what is he what's the engagement strategy for Bonhoeffer or is he saying your responsibility is once they're in the in in, in the church doors well first of all I think if Bonhoeffer was with us today, he'd be shocked that there's a thing called the internet. So that would be that would be fun to see his head explode <laughs> as he found out there's this thing called the internet. But no, I think it's really actually quite relevant. I'm 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 preparing a, a paper for the Bonhoeffer Congress in Stellenbosch, South Africa in January and it's focused on future. It's like Bonhoeffer and the future and in and, and my contribution is Bonhoeffer and the younger generation. Because um in nineteen thirty three, so right as uh, the National Socialists are starting to kind of coalesce and the elections will be happening soon, Bonhoeffer gives a radio address his only radio address he gave called The Younger Generation in the Altered Conception of the Fuhrer. And it's really quite a fascinating essay as he's looking at what's going on with young people who quite like these folks that we're talking about are being radicalized. And he tries to analyze what's going on with that. And for the most part, he he is just trying to analyze it. He does offer, I think, some helpful suggestions of what we should do, or at least the way we need to think differently. It's it's very similar to our situation where Dietrich first talks about the diff- what's happened since the German youth movement, which started in about 1900. And it was this thing called the Vondervogel, which was this really weird thing that's hard for us to even get our minds around. But a bunch of young people gathered in these suburbs of Berlin and other places and just started to wander the countryside. And it's just weird. It's kind of like a 1970s Coca-Cola commercial. You know, they would sing and they would jump in ponds and they just were trying to escape the kind of austere, strict Prussian educational system that kind of was uh, snapping their knuckles all this time. So they just wanted to be free of it. So they would walk and sing. And it was a recovery, as the, the historians of this moment talk about, the recovery of the kind of medieval poet and the medieval scholar. But then after World War One, the German youth movement completely changed and it became 
it went from the Vondervogel to what's called in German the Bunda, which are these more select groups. This 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 Bunda was the shift from the from this medieval scholar um, poet to the white knight, and it now is this sense of needing to fight for something. So, in the the leader became really important in the first group, almost like kind of post-war American youth ministry. It was really about gathering, about having fun, about embracing what it meant to be young. And then as as time developed, which maybe we're closer to, it became really about the leader and changing the world and doing something. So Dietrich writes about this and, and what this actually means. And he really feels like what's, what's occurred is that there's been this over kind of draw to a certain collectivism where you lose the distinctive personhood and then that all gets projected on the great leader and the great leader is going to lead us to this and we have to fight for this perspective. So it's completely mobilized by these grievances, this resentment of which of which we talked about. And so Bonhoeffer just kind of lays, lays this out. And what's so classically Bonhoeffer is he first of all says, listen, let's respect young people enough to really listen to them and to really call them to their responsibilities. So he's never a hater of young people. Even when he thinks they're taking a wrong turn, he wants to embrace them. But then he really does show that this is a dangerous place to be in, that it's very dangerous to look to the leader, to even give up our own kind of perspectives and stories and glue them onto the leader. And so the the way he goes productively here, and I think this is what he would say to, to us answering your question, is that we have to be really frightened. And I think we see this in our culture, this kind of divide between a certain collectivism. And I think we particularly do, to draw this into broader strokes, but I think it's important that we really do kind of see this on the left, especially on Twitter, where there's a certain kind of collectivism. You need to get in line. You need to na- make sure you to not transgress certain perspectives. There's kind of policing of language. But then on the right right now, there's an incredible kind of desire towards the leader, that the person who's going to make America great again, that, in, that we need to follow this person. And Dietrich just thinks that's a recipe for real disaster. And in post-1933 Germany, that collectivism and that need for a great leader comes together in one, and you get just a horrific situation with national socialism, where what we have right now are that kind of two going against each other, a kind of liberal collectivism, a kind of right-wing need for a great leader. But the need for the great leader, in some sense, it can stoke these grievances, this kind of resentment that can lead to some of these actions. And so Dietrich says, do, we need to be wary of two things, is that one, we need to see human beings in a certain way, and we need to see human beings not as choices, as a, a conglomerate of their choices, but we need to see human beings as their bonds, uh, their relationships with each other, that even these even these young people have done horrific acts, that we need to re- be reminded of their humanity, that they are sons to parents, that they are connected to other people, that we always need to see people in the relationships to their bonds. And then the other thing he says is that we need to not focus on the personality, but we actually focus on the office. And that part of the problem with the great leader is it becomes all bound in, in the personality, and you lose the humility of actually representing an office, that the office becomes really significant. So in my own paper, what I'm working on is then contrasting what happened in 1933 with what Archbishop Desmond Tutu did with the Truth and Reconciliation Committees in the mid-1990s, where it was an, it really a phenomenal experience in South Africa to break resentment, that it, it sure could have been a time where now colored and black South Africans get their revenge on the Afrikaans, and yet Tutu leads into this incredible moment of reconciliation by basically doing the two things Bonhoeffer said to do. He sees all South Africans, whether white or black, as bonds, as brothers and sisters, as in relationship um, with one another. And they're having been sinned against or sinned and needing to be led into a moment of confession. And Tutu, as as kind of wonderful a personality as he, as he was, he held to the office that his job was to set this up. It wasn't about him. It was about these narrated stories of brokenness. And the only way resentment, I guess, 
guess it goes back to our earlier point. The only way to break this kind of grievance resentment is for people to narrate their stories and particularly to tell the stories about the relationships and maybe even the broken relationships that make them. And when people have deeply broken relationships, traumatized moments like we like we heard is one of the phenomenons with these young people, when they have those kind of experiences and don't have anyone to share them with, anyone to confess those experiences with, anyone to to say to them, that must be really, really difficult, or you know you're not alone in this, it can just fester and become, well, absolutely evil. It can lead to deep evil inclinations. So I think Bonhoeffer would really call us to have a very different conception of what it means to be a human being and to base that in who God is and what the biblical text has said, that we are persons, that we have our, rela- we have our being in relationship. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. Andy, I haven't been in youth ministry for more than a decade or a decade, I guess, technically, but I don't really remember a lot of at least the language of trauma. I do remember at times people bringing up things that had been hurtful or harmful for them in the past, but I don't necessarily feel like many of the leaders in my life were at least in a more official trauma-informed capacity prepared to deal with some of the stuff that some of the my peers were bringing up at that time. Have you seen any growth in that area with regards to youth ministry just being completely sensitive to the fact that many times young people, you know, beyond this like profile of like who these mass shooters are, right? But like that many young people in general have experienced trauma and are therefore building more capacity in their youth groups for this? Or is this still a blind spot for a lot of youth ministries? I think it's a growing edge. I mean, I think people are aware of trauma, want to be sensitive to trauma. I mean, I at least see that in my students. I see that in a lot of the youth workers that I have the opportunity to interact with across the country, that that is definitely something that they want to be very sensitive to. They're, they're trying to figure out how you do that and how you do the other goods, the other demands that are on them. For instance, to have moments where you're really caring for as a group, particularly as a community experiences a trauma could lead some young people to be like, yeah, I don't know that this is what I want to do, or this doesn't seem so much like so much fun. I think I'll go spend my time somewhere else. So those become competing realities of how do we deal with trauma? How do we open space for still my responsibility to build a growing youth group? So I think we're at the point where we're trying to lean into this, but we're not quite there yet. I think we're still trying to kind of really figure out what's the most helpful thing here and what do we ultimately ultimately need to shape our ministries towards to deal with this. I tend to be one who thinks that the way that that starts is by building a kind of ethos and a culture within our churches, really, more importantly than even our youth groups, but our youth groups as well, that we are free to narrate our experience and we, we narrate our stories. And But I don't think you can just turn to young people and say, share your story 
story of the last time you were, uh, you had trauma or something that share experience where you've been really suffering. Usually what young people need, especially younger young people, and I'm thinking like middle schoolers, but even high school students, that they need to hear other people share those stories. They need to hear adults share their stories. So part of the issue is that the adults or even young adults in a congregation aren't sharing their experiences of struggle and um, maybe trauma or how they're dealing with that so that young people could maybe even say to someone, oh my gosh, my story is just like hers or my story is just like his. And that can open up a space for for encounters. So narrative becomes really important, I think. Sure. I could see how that also could cycle back into resentment, though, in some ways. You know, when you're talking a little bit before about the ways in which, you know, you had this this uh, collectivism and, and, and the, the reaction to that and to these more resentment and, and personality driven things. There's ways of there's ways of connecting into that as a youth pastor where there's an impulse to connect to people's felt passions and to try to redirect them into something more positive or to, you know, show how, you know, the gospel plays into that. Uh, and then there's a way of uh, attempting to disconnect some, some of those passions. So, you know, I could see someone who comes in with a strong sense of being angry at, at the injustice, you know, maybe that they suffered or that other people were suffering and a pastor or a youth pastor saying, okay, you know, let's let, you know, let's, let's take that focus on your, your outrage towards injustice and start a, an, a ministry focused on, focused on justice. And I could also see a youth pastor looking at that same thing and saying, you know, this, this focus on your, your outrage is going to lead to, you know, resentment and, and bitterness. And so what we want to do is disconnect your outrage, you know, maybe even your sense of, uh, of injustice and to, and to look at, you know, the, the God of justice and to kind of present more of a solution. You know, that, I mean, that's just one example of the injustice. I mean, I, I think, you know, the desire for leadership, you know, a strong leadership and you say, well, you know, yeah, strong leadership is great, but let's make sure we're following, you know, the one true leader or saying, hey, your focus on leadership is going to be a problem in the future. Where, where is Bonhoeffer, even where where are you in terms of trying to disentangle kind of culturally dangerous impulses and where are you on on or Bonhoeffer on trying to just defuse some of those those cultural passions that's really w- well said because part of the problem especially in the in the communities where where I do a lot of my work that trauma can also in talking about trauma oh I don't know I guess I have to be careful here but it, it can become a, like you're saying it can become directed almost a, as a kind of power move where in a group in a community it can break down community because all of a sudden those who most loudly say they've been traumatized and therefore resent certain people are the ones who we listen to. So I think part of the pastoral impulse needs to be that when we recognize real trauma, we need to know how to get people help. But we also have to be sensitive that to create a space where everyone gets to share their story here, that stories really are about us being with and for one another, because you can have it break down the other way where someone will share their story of trauma. And then someone who has actually quite grieved and broken can feel like, well, I, I guess my issue isn't as much as that person. And so I guess I'm for, I'm more alone in this experience than, than than I was before. And I don't think that's what we want to get at. I think we want to say that everyone has a story to articulate here and that we can wrestle with and that we can as a community try to in, interpret here. Because there is just a way where we can use these grievances to lead to certain forms of resentment. And I think, I think what we have to do is create spaces for us to see each other's humanity. And that becomes the most important thing. I mean, I had an experience, I taught a class in Australia in 2017. So it was just after 
uh, President uh, Trump had been, went through his inauguration, and there was about 20 people in the, in the course, and we were introducing ourselves the first day. And we got about halfway around the circle to a man who was probably late 60s, uh, maybe maybe 70. And I asked people to say their name and why they were taking the course. And this man said, said his name, and he said, well, I'm taking this course because it fit my schedule, and this is the last course I need before I get my degree. And then he paused, and he said, well, I also took this course because I'm part of this group called the alt-right. And I kind of smiled thinking he was just trying to have a, you know, a joke with me, but he wasn't. He was dead serious. He said, I'm part of the alt-right and and I'm looking uh, at how it was a, a course on youth culture. And he said, I'm looking for ways to uh, recruit young people into the alt-right. And I also want to know why the young people are in the alt-right don't want to go to church. And it became the most taxing, difficult course I've ever taught because it just so happened that this guy was at the center of the Australian alt-right movement and had been a had been a lawyer and a law professor before being dismissed from his position for his white supremacist perspectives. And he was incredibly articulate, incredibly smart. And it was just a, a, a huge sign to me that feeding on young people's resentment, there are people who are really quite honestly trying to radicalize young people in this way. And we need a Christian theology that honors people's experiences of trauma, but also doesn't allow those traumas to become a competition, which then just breeds resentment, and that there are people out there who are incredibly smart, evil smart, that will be trying to radicalize particularly middle-class, young, white males in this cultural context. We need to kind of do better than saying to them, uh, your time is done, and you just go in your room and play video games, and no one wants to listen to you anymore. Assume that they're not going to find a website and be radicalized. I think that becomes a huge challenge that we confront as we go forward in these next couple decades of, as we make certain important cultural changes and open up to multiple people's experience, how do we not demonize some and make them enemy and then just push them into the arms of some pretty diabolical stuff that's going out there. And I do think it starts with youth ministries being open to people's experience, having them hear stories. And that sounds kind of simplistic, but it brings back personhood over the collectivism and the the, the need for a great leader that is just starting to move itself across our Western world. I find all of these conversations so fraught for many of the reasons that you've already outlined, but not the least of which, which again, you've, you've touched on some, trying to include and keep people in community that have expressed really vile views about other members of the community and done so in ways that like actively threaten harm or have harmed people. Or I think you also talked about people projecting views on them. I think about the attack that happened a couple of years ago now in Toronto that was done by someone who said they were part of the incel or involuntarily celibate community, a male community known for their resentment of women who they believe deserve to sleep with them and who do not. People who hold attitudes like that, for instance, that can feel extremely threatening to the women that are a part of that community. And I'm wondering your thoughts on how that what that looks like in a very like practical way to ask these groups to, I don't even know, coexist, or if at some point you ask the person to leave the community because of those views, how do you treat something like that? Again, upholding each other's humanity becomes essential. So when these people do become quite violent, either, either verbally or quite directly, I think we have to be able to say no further. We have to be able to put up a boundary. And sometimes that boundary may be, we'd like you not to come here. Our issue is it starts so much earlier in that these resentments that just get mobilized and get fed are based in other stories, other stories that they have that are just quite honestly not 
Right. And, and when people are alone or find themselves in just locked in collectives that just echo back these same grievances, and these are the people, these are the people, it's women, it's these people, it's those people, they're, they're the ones that are, that, that are keeping us from living the life we're supposed to live, that that just becomes, we almost get to a point where we're, we're, we're too late when, when that occurs. And the only way back is through prayer and transformation that actual encounters with other people's person and personhood and hearing their stories can o- open that up. And it really then does become, I think, theologically confession. And so this becomes the hard part, I think, within our, our cultural context is to only wait for those people to maybe still stay in those communities is they need to confess. It needs to be a moment of confession. But if people feel like then they're going to be punished for confessing those, like these used to be my views or I am tempted by these views and they confess those and then they're going to be punished for that, they'll never do that. And it will just lead the other voices to say, see, these people are are against you completely. For me, there's this recovery of testimony. There's a recovery of confession that's based in storytelling that we all need to kind of confess these realities in the way that we get pulled into them. But when it does become fundamentally violent or when people are attacking us or people are saying they're, they're the problem, we have to stand up to it in some way. But we have to stand up to it in a way that we don't kind of perpetuate the violence done unto them and, and, and in some ways uh, stand up by having these moments moments of, of shared personhood again. So I think often we have to tell our own stories about how this happened or how we feel when that occurs that, that gets us there. But it's a it's an incredible tricky issue because there's so many of these experiences too where people don't share these kind of views and they have them again cut off in this this online digital spaces. Sometimes we don't know until it's too late. Talked a little bit about people who seem, I don't know, outwardly lonely or are labeled as loners. But of course, there's lots of research that suggests that loneliness is not something that is just felt by people who we may see as quote unquote loners, but is something that is experienced by more and more young people. I was on the Twitter account of sociologist Bradford Wilcox a couple of days ago, and he had posted some research about suicide, anxiety, and depression among teens about how the suicide rate appears to be at the highest that it's been in the past 60 years, how there seems to be increases in all of these things, whether it's anxiety, depression, and loneliness. And I actually read some other study the other day that said that one in five young people say that they have no friends, which is also a crazy statistic to read. And so I didn't know, Andy, if you could talk about like the just the larger cultural waters that Gen Z and younger millennials are swimming in these days that is you believe to be contributing to the widespread nature of this loneliness. It's a crazy statistic that what did you say one in five young people say they don't have any friends? Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's amazing cuz you know the stereotype of growing up in the 90s or even the 80s was that it, all adolescence was was about friends and I think that's really true. I mean, you know, some of the research of the 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 Gen Z and, and the iGen or whatever you want to call them is the sense that they're they're spending so much more time with their parents than actually with friends that they're they're in their rooms watching Netflix and that they're growing up actually slower and one of the things that reasons I think they're growing up slower is because our larger culture just keeps speeding up it just things just keep going faster whether it's technological change whether it's social change whether it's just the pace of our day-to-day lives are changing and there's a lot I think we've seen just an escalation of identity options you know like we think back to the breakfast club and it seemed like one of the reasons 
reasons that The Breakfast Club was such a great movie in the 80s, or at least seemed to resonate with people, is because it had one of each type of identity you could be, you know, so it was like six identity options. And now we live in a cultural context where, in many ways, some, for some good gains, you, there are hundreds of options of identity uh, options out there. You could be whatever you want to be. You get to decide that for yourself. So there's this whole push towards uniqueness and then getting recognition for your unique identity. But I'm really intrigued by this French sociologist named Alan Ernberg, who's written this book called The Wariness of the Self. And actually in French, their, their direct translation is, is um, the fatigue of being yourself. His whole argument is he, he gives this kind of a genealogy, a kind of history of depression. And he shows that depression has become kind of the mental illness issue post 1970s. And he thinks it has a lot to do with our speeding up of our society and the utter responsibility that's placed on you to create and curate your own identity. That you creating a unique self and getting recognition for that unique self becomes your responsibility. And that is an incredible, incredible task to place on the shoulders of a 14-year-old kid. That you need not only to figure out your own identity, but then you need to uniquely perform that identity and perform it in a way that other eyeballs, particularly on social media or whatever, look at it and hit the like button, that you actually have a unique, interesting identity. And of course, once you do that, you got to keep doing it because, you know, now people are distracted and you have to win that recognition back. And so you have to continue to create this identity. And he actually thinks that in many ways, kind of broadly, what depression becomes is this wariness of having to continue to curate the self. You know, that becomes, I think, a huge challenge that we have with, with young people in that they're growing up slower because the larger society is going more quickly. And that puts them in, in huge moments of, of crisis. Um, and so I think this becomes a huge issue for us, but it has a ton to do with how the self works. And we can see how resentment and grievance pulls into this. I mean, when you look at, I hope I don't offend any of your listeners here, big Taylor Swift fans, but almost every Taylor Swift song that is not about um, some love that's been lost is about resentment for some friend who didn't identify her identity the way she wanted it to be. You know, the hater, all the haters that are out there. So we have a whole generation who's growing up with this incredible task before them, starting at 11 or 12, to create and then curate their own identity and then to beware of all the haters and to try, in, in many ways, try to accrue as many fans as you can, which ultimately makes you... I think has the potential of making you incredibly lonely and really wonder who you are at all. And really to have no, to put this in theological and important kind of Christian ministry framework, have no kind of moral horizon beyond the recognition yourself gets that orders your life. And I think at least the Christian life wants to say, yes, having an identity is important. Having it connected to your life stories is important. Receiving affirmation from people is important. But what it really means to live a human life is, again, has something to do with the very human life that Jesus Christ lives has something to do with these kind of moral frameworks that that we've lived out of. But now our highest good tends to be our own self. And and that can be incredibly lonely and not only lonely, but incredibly fatiguing, I think has pushed a lot of young people away from feeling like they have any friends and feeling always on the precipice, if not kind of teetering into depression. Sure. Here's a question. This is a false dichotomy, but, you know, we have limited energy. What's the big task for a parent, a Christian parent, you know, in, in 2019, uh, a parent of a teen, is it, man, my, I need to be 
putting a ton of energy into making sure that my kid's identity is secure in Christ? Or is it more, I guess, missional and saying, you know, as my kid is formed in Christ and I'm making sure that he's, you know, engaged in this Christian community, I want to make sure that my kid is is out there being a friend to as many other other kids as possible, like just getting getting my kid out there and trying to do to befriend all of these, you know, somewhat friendless uh, other other people his age. What's the bigger urgency right now? And I hope in some ways we we could do both of those. I think the biggest thing going forward as parents, and I have a 14-year-old myself, and so I'm living this existentially in, in fear and trembling, that the, the temptation for us, I think, as particularly middle-class, late modern parents, is to think that what we need to give our kid is as many things as we can. And I don't even mean those material things, but connection to things things like basketball, like debate, like a tutor for test prep, and that then youth ministry of the church just becomes another thing in a menu of things. Usually is a thing that ends up losing when there's a test the next day or there's a basketball tournament or or something like that. And I think what our young people need to kind of connect us to what we've said earlier is they don't need another thing. And so the youth ministry doesn't need to be another thing. The parent doesn't need to be committed to another thing. What they ultimately need is stories in that the Christian life is, is a story and they need stories to live inside of. And and I'm with the philosopher Charles Taylor on this, that identity is always based in narratives and usually narratives of the good, of what it means to live a good life. So I think parents need to help their kids have stories and narratives of what it means to live a good life. And as a Christian, that means that story is, is linked with the very life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to have our identities in that story will propel us out into the world to our neighbor. And at the very least, to the lone kid in the class to see that kid as a human being who has other human beings that love him or love her or has relationships that are broken and fractured and at least to see that young person as a human being, which means maybe being willing to talk to them, maybe being a willing at least not to uh, pick on them or or to ignore them. And so I think those things can both happen at the same time of the discipleship and our own identity through these narratives to really care for, for, our, for our neighbor, to care for other people in our world. As we close, maybe in 90 seconds or so, you could give us two or three ways that you think that we should pray specifically for young people today. Ultimately, really have to pray that young people, that this epidemic that or um, shadow of loneliness that's just kind of creeping over our culture, that, that they'll be protected from that. But then that I think that secondly, we need to pray for the courage that we can be near our own young people, our own children, our own grand grandchildren, our, the young people in our congregations, and be near to them. And then thirdly, not only be near to them, but then to share our own stories. And our own stories of God's goodness to us, but also our own stories of the places and the times in our life where it's felt like God has been distant or silent. And yet here we are still faithfully um, seeking for God, that to be able to tell them the breadth of those stories of Christian commitment through multiple experiences in the journey of life, I think, become really, really significant. Um, So I think those become some ways forward to to pray for uh, loneliness to be broken, but then to participate in breaking that loneliness by being near and seeing and then actually sharing with them our narratives and our stories. Thanks, Andy. For people who had thoughts and opinions, things that they agreed with and things they didn't disagree with, please give us some feedback. You can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. You can also go on Twitter. We're at CT Podcast. Thank you, everyone who gives us feedback. We definitely read it and consider everything that you guys have to say. If you are interested in some of the previous episodes that we have done in the wake of mass shootings, I wanted to just highlight a couple for you. There's episode 78, 
ministering in a mass shooting's wake, and it's about a church in Orlando and how they dealt with everything that happened in the Pulse mass shootings a couple of years ago. We did another one, episode 83, The Christian History of America's Guns, which is extremely informative, and you'll really learn a lot about how guns came to be where they are these days and their relationship with Christians in particular. And then very early on, we did an episode, episode 14, How Social Media Fails Our Orlando Grief. This one is with Andy Crouch and just has some really good things to say about processing things, especially in an internet and social media age, as it suggests. I think there's a lot of wisdom there. So yeah, if you're looking for some other angles and other explorations into all the stuff that is raised in aftermath of mass shootings, I would suggest that you listen to those as well. I do want to just kind of like highlight the fact that Ted is on the show and he is our editorial director, which not every organization has an editorial director. Did you come up with that job title, Ted? Maybe. I think it was Mark that maybe came up with it. It's, it's, it is rare for a place to have an ed- editor-in-chief and an editorial Talk director. being special. It huh? is. It is unique. Yeah. Cool. So what is one of your favorite things that you do as editorial director? I guess in the context of, of some of this, you know, one of the things I do is I just read everything that we, that we do and make sure it's as good as it can be before it goes out. I'm also, you know, some people may not know, we, we have these kind of special projects that we do. So we just had this special issue of Christianity Today that uh, a number of people will be getting with their next issue from our CT Women vertical, looking at um, women in missions and how uh, women have been shaping uh, the missions community and also how missions is changing and the women who are playing a role in that. So there's a really great place, Mission missionaries from the developing world, what that really looks like when they go work in in, a developed world. We have a great piece by uh, Noemi Vega-Quinones on uh, partnering with the Holy Spirit in mission. Kelly Trujillo has been our project editor on that, and it's been great working with her on that. And people who get the print issue will get a a sneak preview of that and have a way to sign up for it. And right now, spending a lot of time working with Kyle Rohane from CT Pastors on uh, an issue on uh, what uh, church ministry will look like kind of 10 years hence. So kind of the you know the near term future of, of church ministry so that's that's been a really exciting thing to work with uh, pastors and and some future thinkers and, and and practitioners so if you want to support all of these endeavors you can do so by donating to us and that is possible by going to morect.com slash quick to listen that is morect.com slash quick to listen and again we just like to give people a more robust sense of all the stuff that we're doing over here in Christianity today land <laughs> All right. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments. Everyone gets to share something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, once again, go ahead. This is uh, an odd joy. But this weekend, I'm heading out to Seattle for the funeral of of my friend uh, Rob Mall, uh, who I mentioned earlier in the podcast. used to be an associate editor here at Christianity Today, uh, has since worked for uh, World Vision and and a number of other places. And yeah, was one of my uh, dear friends. I've learned a lot from him uh, over, over the years. Uh, he's written some great books, but but really just he and I have shared a lot of, of great chats and, and talks over the years. And so uh, he died tragically in a, a mountain climbing accident a few weeks ago, leaving behind several young children. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, joy is not the main word that comes to mind, but there is a certain, there's a, there's a, there's a, a certain thing about saying goodbye, supporting a family, going to a funeral that is, is, is beautiful and that I'm, I'm actually in, in a lot of ways really looking forward to uh, celebrating his life, celebrating uh, what he was able to contribute, and also celebrating the fact that, uh, that we will uh, be spending eternity together and we'll have lots of great talks in the future. So, All right. 
And people can find you on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Ted Olson. And yeah, most of my work is behind the scenes here at Christianity Today. All right. Andy, do you want to go? I think um, my moments of joy have been my kids just returned from camp. So they had a great a great time at uh, camp. And that was uh, great. It's always great to see them excited about that. I have a 14-year-old, as I said, and an 11-year-old. And I am uh, oh, actually, she just turned 12. So they had a great time at camp. So that was wonderful. But also more benign but important is my, uh, my baseball team, the Minnesota Twins, are actually in contention. And so that makes the summer way better when you actually can enjoy a few innings of a game and so um, I'm enjoying that but as a good Minnesota sports fan I'm waiting to get my heart broken when it will all fall apart you have to play the um, Yankees in the first round I guarantee you that will happen Yes, and then we'll, we'll get swept. So don't talk to me in October because I'll be very disappointed. All right. Andy, can people find your work anywhere? Are you online? You can find me. I have a website. That's just andrew.org. You can find stuff there. And I'm on Twitter, though. I have a very bad Twitter game. I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Root Andrew. And then I have, as you kindly mentioned at the top of the show, a new book that just came out with Baker Academic called The Pastor in a Secular Age. Check that out as well. I think last week my precious moment would have been how good my baseball team was doing. But that's not as true this week, which (laughs) is very frustrating. But yesterday I did go to Wrigley Field for the first time this summer. It's pretty late for me to go. Normally I have been there already by now. I went with a friend from high school who was seeing his team play the Cubs. There were a ton of home runs. I had good conversation. It was 90 degrees outside, which I love really hot baseball games, which are at evening, so you're not in the brunt of everything. And I got a lemon ice, which if you do not know what that is, that is the best thing that you can order in the ballpark at any given time. It is, I don't know, a pint of frozen lemonade. I probably ate it in 15 minutes. I was so excited. And it's only it's, 6 50 It's like frozen sugar with a little lemon ice. Oh, it's lemon so on. good. I'm already like, I'm going to see when the Giants come to town, I'll go back to Wrigley Field and I'm already looking forward to buying another lemon ice when I get there. So people can keep up with me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Linder. The music is by Sweeps. You can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts is a great place to show your love for the show, including us giving us a five-star rating and reviewing the show. If you have comments and other things that are particular to a particular episode, you can send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We really appreciate the feedback that you send us, and we will see you all next week. Bye. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.